Amen. Praise the Lord. I, um, uh, this is healing school, of course, on Sunday nights. Every Sunday night is, uh, is healing school, and we always are ministering along the lines of healing in some way or another. And as such, since you're doing it week after week after week, there are some subjects that you're going to have to uh, um, retrace your steps, and, and, um, uh, and it's helpful for us to go over time and time again. And this is one of those, uh, one of those nights I felt very strongly in my heart this afternoon to, uh, to teach on the praise cure. And this is something that we've uh, taught many, many times. And, and, uh, um, but, you know, Paul said to the, um, uh, to the churches, he wrote to the churches that he didn't count it a grievous thing to put them in remembrance of what he told them before. Wouldn't it be nice if we got it the first time we heard it? But uh, nevertheless, there are some things that, uh, that I really want to share with you tonight. And I have, um, uh, I have it in my heart to go a little bit different direction with, um, uh, with this subject. And I've got a problem. There are so many scriptures in the Bible that prove the case that um, it's difficult to cover them all. But I feel impressed to cover a lot of them this evening. And, and uh, as such, I know that uh, it's not an uncommon thing for people to complain that I go too fast. Uh, we had somebody share that in the middle of the service this morning. I was just getting started. <laughs> I hadn't even warmed up yet. And somebody said, slow down, slow down. So um, uh, I know that, uh, that I have a tendency to, to, uh, to speak quickly and talk fast about the Word. And, and really, it's, it's not something that I uh, think about doing. I try not to do it, to be honest with you. But I just get excited about the truth of the Word and, and take off. So um, we encourage you to, to uh, get the CDs or whatever, and you can slow me down as low as you want me to go and, and uh, then get it. But, uh, but for those of you that like to take notes, you've got a problem tonight. Uh, I would suggest that at the very least, uh, or maybe the best you can do, is just write down the scripture references. Uh, I don't know if I'll even be able to, to uh, go slow enough for the guys in the back to, to throw the scriptures up on the screen if they're still doing that. I, I just don't know. But anyway, I have in my heart to, to cover a lot of ground. If, uh, if you try to turn to every one of those scriptures, I'll set your Bible on fire before you leave. promise you on that. But I want to start in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And I'm going to just pull out some scriptures uh, out of context, uh, hopefully you know the context. Certainly the Romans chapter 4 in this instance is talking about Abraham being the father of faith, the example of our faith. And one of the characteristics that it says in Romans chapter 4 about verse 20, it says he staggered not, King James says he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Giving glory to God. One of the characteristics that the Bible speaks of by the Holy Ghost, one of the characteristics that are identified about strong faith or that, that, that literally identifies what strong faith is or when strong faith is in operation is giving glory to God. Now, it's talking about Abraham glorifying God for the promise of the son before the son was ever born. He gave God glory. I like the American Standard Version of this scripture. It says, but looking under the promise of God, he staggered or wavered not through unbelief, but was strong in faith. And the characteristic, again, is giving glory to God. Now, the next scripture I want to point you to is um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16, 17, and 18. Paul is winding up his first letter to the Thessalonian church, and he says to them, gives them some quick bullet points uh, of instruction. And he says in verse 16, rejoice evermore. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Verse 18, in everything give thanks. Now, he didn't say give thanks for everything, but he said in everything give thanks. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Now, folks, if I had a nickel for every person that uh, came up to me in, in the 30 years we've been pastoring this church, almost 30 years since we started this church in the several years I was in ministry before that, if I had a nickel for every person that came up and said, Pastor Mike, I need to talk to you because I need to find out the will of God. Well, the Bible tells you what the will of God is in a general sense. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And notice it talks twice as much about rejoicing and giving thanks as it does about praying. Twice as much. Two instructions for rejoicing and giving thanks. I'm grouping those in together. And one instruction, one instance where it says pray without ceasing. Next scripture I want you to look at with me or be aware of, is in James chapter 1, in verse 2. James says it in a different way, but he's talking about the same thing. He says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Now, the word temptation means test, trial, or affliction. Trouble. Count it all joy when you fall into trouble. Boy, that's not a fun thing to do, is it? 
But notice it's the instruction that the Holy Ghost is giving to us. Here's how to handle trouble. Now, most of us try to pray away trouble. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says count it all joy when you find yourself in trouble. You're going to find yourself in trouble. What do you do? Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing about your situation. And in everything, give thanks. Again, it's not you're not giving thanks for the trouble, but you can count it all joy or give thanks in the middle of the trouble. The storms of life are going to come, folks. The key is whether or not you can learn to dance in the storm. Because that's what the Bible says to do. Now, most of the time we run into trouble. And what's the first thing we do? Man, we hit our knees. We get on our face. Oh, God, why in the world is this happening to me? Or, oh, Lord, why is this happening or lasting so long? Oh, Lord, what am I doing wrong that causes this to stay or caused it to come or whatever the case might be? Most Christians pray immediately about their trouble. But the first thing the Bible says about trouble is count it all joy. In other words, instead of being surprised that we get in trouble, find ourselves in trouble, the devil is an equal opportunity destroyer. Therefore, you're gonna, you need to recognize trouble is going to come. And trouble is not going to come because you messed up. Sometimes we bring it on ourselves, but a lot of times it's just because the devil's being the devil. Just trying to discourage us. Well, the Bible gives us specific instruction about what to do in trouble. And there's not, a, not one, one word said about whining. Not one word said about complaining. It says count it all joy. Now, why do you have to count it all joy? Because it's not joyful. In other words, if you allow me to put my own interpretation on this, put on thanksgiving. You're not going to feel like thanking God. You're not going to feel like getting happy. But put it on when you fall into trouble. Why? Because it's just a matter of your faith seeing you through. The next scripture I want you to look at with me or be aware of is over in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Paul's writing to the church, uh, verses 18, 19, and 20. He says, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, being filled with the Spirit, these people, if you look in Acts chapter 19, they're already speaking with tongues. So the being filled with the Spirit he's talking about is not receiving the Holy Ghost. He's talking about here's how to live a Spirit-filled life. He's going to give specific instruction about how to live a spirit-filled life. He's not just saying receive the Holy Ghost so that you can speak in tongues. That's great, but then what? Here's how you let the Holy Spirit permeate every area of your life. And notice what he says, verse 19. How do we uh, live a spirit-filled life? Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sounds a lot like praising and rejoicing to me. The first thing that the Bible says about uh, lists as a characteristic of living a spirit-filled life is not speaking in tongues, but praising God. Now, am I saying we need to praise God instead of speaking in tongues? I don't know about you folks, but I praise God in tongues a lot. The Bible says when you speak in other tongues, your spirit is speaking directly to God. So when you're singing songs in the spirit, when you're singing in other tongues, that's a means of spiritual praise directly given by the Holy Spirit. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. I'm sure glad it didn't say you have to do that in public. I don't do much of that in public. But I mean I do a lot of it in private. And that blesses both of us. Trust me. That's good for you just as good as it is for me. Notice the next thing that he says. First thing he mentions is giving praise. The next thing he mentions in verse 20 is giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's not saying give God thanks for trouble. God's not the author of trouble. He's saying recognize the things that God has done in your life and be thankful. Live a life of praise. Live a life of thanksgiving. He said the same thing to Colossians in chapter 3 and verse 16. He said it a little bit differently. He said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, folks, if we took that apart, we could identify from Scripture by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost that the word of God is only dwelling us in all richly in all wisdom when we're singing unto God, when we're singing and living a life of praise. Now, a lot of times we want to fill our minds with the word so that we can have it to quote anytime we want to. But that's not what it says is dwelling in us richly in all wisdom. To let the word dwell in you richly in all wisdom is to praise God continually. 
Why? Because of all the wonderful things he's done for you. Next scripture I want you to be aware of and look with me is Philippians chapter 4. Paul writing to the church at Philippi, he said, be careful for nothing. One translation says, be anxious for nothing. Don't fret about anything. Be careful for nothing, but in everything. Everybody say everything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Now, people are willing to pray. People are willing to supplicate. Most people don't even know what that is, but that means hold on to the promise of God for a long time if necessary. Don't turn loose until you receive the answer. To assert your rights, to claim the promises of God no matter how long it takes, and don't turn loose no matter what it looks like. That's really what supplication is. A lot of Christians are willing to do that. They'll persevere and hold on to the end, not because they want to, because they have to. But they don't want to add the third part. Be careful for nothing. Don't worry. Don't fret. Don't have any anxiety about anything. But in everything, in everything, in every situation, in every trouble, in every test, in every trial, in every affliction, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Let your request be made known unto God. Notice the Bible says to pray or make your request attached with thanksgiving. Now, what do we have to thank God about if we're in the middle of trouble and praying because of the trouble? Well, we can thank God that he hears and answers prayer. We can thank God that he honors his word. And when we pray his word, we know we have the answer that we ask for. And it goes further in verse 7. He says, And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Notice that praying with thanksgiving has a lot to do with the peace of God. Now, it's not just a matter of praying. It's not just a matter of giving thanks. He goes on in verse 8 and says, do something about what you think. He says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think. Everybody say think. Think on these things. Well, with a list like that, there's about... literally there's one and and maybe only one thing that fits all that criteria and that's the word so literally we could say that he's saying finally brethren think on the word think on the scripture that that brings you your answer the scripture that you prayed with thanksgiving and that will keep you in peace well wouldn't the church be a lovely looking thing if you acted on these scriptures and, and, and did what the Bible said it sure changed our lives wouldn't it now, folks, we know these things. We've been taught these things. We learned these things years and years and years ago. But look how easy it is to let them slip. Because when I'm talking about these things, you're thinking the same thing I'm thinking. Yeah, I could do a better job of praising God in my situation. Now, why is that? Because the devil wants to make you so aware of the trouble and the difficulty and the inconvenience that you forget about one of the greatest weapons that we have at our disposal, and that's praising God. Now, Paul's writing to the Philippians. Be careful for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. It'd be real easy, and I know people do this with me, and it, how much more so would they do it with Paul? It'd be real easy for somebody reading these scriptures to take the position that, well, yeah, but Paul doesn't have my kind of trouble. And it never fails whenever you start talking about something like this or talking along these lines. Somebody will come up to you after the service and say, Pastor Mike, I just can't quit worrying. Well, what they're really saying is they won't. But they're telling themselves that they don't have the ability to stop. Well, God would be unjust if he told you not to worry and didn't give you the power to keep from worry. You could challenge his justice if he told you to do something you couldn't do. You're aware of that, aren't you? So if the Bible tells you you can do something, then you can do it. If the Bible tells you to do something, then you have the ability to do what it says. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, you just don't know what trouble I've got. Well, I may not know what trouble you've got, but I know what the Word says. And the Word's true no matter what your trouble is or what my trouble is or how long we've had it or how deep we're in it. Be careful for nothing. Don't fret. Don't worry. Don't have any anxiety about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Now, turn back with me to Acts chapter 16 because I want you to see this in practice. Now, remember, Paul wrote this to the Philippian church. Notice what Paul's experience was the first time he went to Philippi, the city of Philippi. I'll start in verse 12 and then skip down a little bit. It says, and from thence, talking about after leaving one place, next they went to Philippi, 
which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia and a colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. And it tells about uh, different things that happened. One lady got uh, baptized. Skip down with me to verse 16. And it came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination, one translation says fortune-telling, met us, which brought her masters much gain or revenue by soothsaying or telling fortunes. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. I don't know how many that is, but many must be more than a few. This did she many days, but Paul, being grieved, one day just suddenly, Holy Spirit comes on him to deal with it. Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. And when her master saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace under the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceeding trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. And the multitude rose up together. They believed the lie, in other words. They rose up together against them. And the magistrates ran off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. Now, the inner prison would imply that it's the, the toughest, rankest, darkest place that, uh, the part of the prison that there is wouldn't it don't think jail cell like we're accustomed to or federal prison these places were caves mostly that they threw people in and bound them with chains now i don't know what your trouble is but paul seemed to have a little bit of knowledge about what trouble looked like on his end at least wouldn't you agree i've never been in that kind of trouble have you now, with some of the laws they're making in the country, who knows, we may get there yet. But so far, I haven't been in that kind of trouble. I've had trouble that looked to me and felt to me like it was really tough, but nothing like that. So maybe Paul does know what he's talking about. How did Paul handle his trouble? He's good at telling the Philippians when he writes to them later, as recorded in chapter 4, verse 6, don't be anxious or fret about anything. Don't worry, have any worries or anxieties about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Let's see if Paul lives what he preaches. Verse 25. And at midnight, I believe this was literally midnight, but that could symbolize your darkest hour. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed. They stopped there and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. What are they doing? Well, they're not being anxious about anything. But in every situation, they're praying and making supplication unto God with thanksgiving, just like they told the Philippian church to do when he wrote back to them and gave them the letter that we now have record of. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that all the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. Look at the deliverance that came. Now, folks, this is not an isolated case. As I said, there are more examples in the Bible than we've got time to look at. We'll look at several of them, but there are a lot more that we could take time to look at if we, if we wanted to take that much time. This is not an isolated case. And besides that, how did Paul and Silas know to do this? Because it's all throughout the Old Testament. Not just to pray. Somehow or another, the church, the modern-day church, has understood that we're supposed to pray to God and get him to help us in our trouble, but they've forgotten the pray and the praise part, the, the pray and the praise connection, the prayer and the praise connection. Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises. They prayed and sang praises. Now, I wonder if the same thing would have happened if they had just prayed. Well, I can show you a lot of Christians. I can even show you examples in my own life where all I did was pray and I didn't get the answer. So we certainly can't take part of this scripture and leave it out and say, well, they would have gotten the same results if they had just prayed. The singing was just uh, supplemental. It was just a side issue. Apparently not. If it is a side issue, then the Holy Ghost wouldn't have told Paul to write back to them and say, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. The Holy Ghost is leading you into victory. He'll guide you into all truth. He'll guide you into all victory in every area of life, physical as well as every other area. So that means the instruction is necessary and critical and a part of the, the, the total package or part of the whole puzzle. 
Pray and sing praises. Pray and sing praises. Now I want you to look at another example with me. Look back with me to Second Chronicles chapter 20. Here's an Old Testament example. It tells a story about how the five, uh, the King Jehoshaphat, at this point in time, the, um, uh, the kingdom has been divided. Ten and a half tribes have gone with the northern kingdom called Israel. One and a half tribes are uh, Benjamin and um, uh, the tribe of Judah and half the tribe of Benjamin have gone within the, uh, together and joined together. And they're called the southern kingdom, Judah. And Jehoshaphat is king of Judah. And there are five enemy armies that are coming out against them. They're outnumbered in a big, big way. Well, that sounds like real trouble, doesn't it? What do they do? Well, Jehoshaphat gives a decree that all the people should seek the Lord. He knows that God is his answer. He's the only answer that there is. Folks, I don't know if you've been in situations yet. Probably you have. But if you haven't, you'll get there. Where God is the only answer you're going to have. He's the only answer. He's the only deliverance. He's the only way out. Now, his way out may not be what, your way, what you want the way out to be, but there's always a way out. See, I know a lot of people that want to receive their healing, but they've got it all figured out how they want to get it. They want somebody to pray over them without any responsibility on their own, and all of a sudden it'll just fall down from heaven and cover them, and then they'll be okay. Well, the Bible says most of the people in Jesus' ministry received healing on their own faith. Well, if that was true of Jesus, wouldn't it be true of us too? It would seem so. So God's going to be, you're going to get in situations or find yourself in circumstances where God's your only answer. Jehoshaphat knows God's our only answer here. Without God's help, we're, we're toast. We're done for. So he sets, he proclaims a fast throughout all of the land, tells everybody to seek after God. And, uh, um, and Jehoshaphat stood, I'll start in verse 5. I'm going to read a, a good bit of this. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord and before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, art thou not God in heaven? Now, remember, the Bible says don't be anxious, don't fret about anything, but pray and sing praises or pray and give thanks. Notice what the Old Testament looked like, the Old Testament examples looked like when they prayed and gave thanks. Here's Jehoshaphat's prayer. O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? Now, most people, most modern Church people would stop right there and say, oh, you can't talk to God like that. Well, Jehoshaphat did. And the Holy Ghost gave us a record of it. Now, if Jehoshaphat had done something wrong, if he had done something that God just overlooked, don't you know the Holy Ghost would not have saved this record? The fact that he did save the record for us tells us this is a good pattern to follow. Notice they don't start off saying, oh, God, don't you see the trouble we're in? He says, God, are you not God in heaven? Are you not big enough for this? And rulest not thou over the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thy hand is there not power and might so that none is able to withstand thee? Notice the first thing he's doing. He's encouraging himself as to the bigness of God. God, are you not bigger than this problem? The very way that he asks it shows that he knows that he is. He's just reminding himself and everybody that hears it. Wait a minute. God's the God in heaven. God's got plenty of power to handle this situation. Verse 7, Art thou not our God who did drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and gave it to to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? And they dwelt therein and had built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, If when evil comes upon us as with the sword, judgment or pestilence or famine, we stand before this house and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. Now you see what he's saying here, don't you? He's recounting how God had delivered them... uh, delivered the promised land unto them how they had built a temple how that at the time that that temple was dedicated by Solomon Solomon decreed unto the Lord and God said if you come into my house and you're in trouble and you stand in the door of this house and call upon my name I'll hear you and help you from heaven he's recounting that he's putting God into remembrance of what God had said and now behold, verse 10, And now behold the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not. I like this guy Jehoshaphat. He's turning around and saying, God, the only reason we've got this problem is you wouldn't let us destroy them before when we came out of Egypt. 
Behold, I say, verse 11, how they reward us. Look how they reward us for not destroying them beforehand when we could have and should have. Behold, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. I like the fact that he calls the promised land God's possession. It's theirs to inherit, and they did inherit it, but it belongs to God. Folks, do you realize your body belongs to God? Do you realize an attack of sickness against you is the devil trying to cast you out of what belongs to God by right because Jesus paid for it with his blood? The Bible says glorify God in your body and spirit which are both God's. O our God, verse 12, O our God, will thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us, neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. Then the Bible says, All Judah stood together before the Lord, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon a certain prophet, Jehaziel. And when the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in the midst of the congregation, he said unto them, Hearken ye all, Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou King Jehoshaphat. Thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. But folks, I can't imagine anybody in that crowd that's not going to be happy to hear that. The battle's not yours but God's. Wouldn't you like God to tell you that about every situation you encounter? The battle's not yours, it's God's. Oh, hallelujah. Well, Lord, you take care of it and I'll stay home and watch TV. That's not part of the package here. That's not the program. He said, tomorrow, the battle is still God's, but you still have to go out against your enemy. Tomorrow, go you down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and you shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand you still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping him. And I guess so. Everybody wants kind of news like that, don't they? Everybody wants that kind of news. Folks, I would submit to you that that is not any more real, is not any more true, it is not any more significant than the Bible that says through Jesus, you're more than a conqueror. I would submit to you that this prophecy that came through by the Spirit of the Lord through Jehaziel is not any more true, is not any more sound, is not any more to be relied on then the Bible that says that God gives us the victory through our faith. Thanks be to God which gives us the victory. And this is the, the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith, John said. In other words, you've got just as sure a promise as they had. If you'll take hold of it like they did and do what they did with it, we can walk in victory just like they did. And the Levites and the children of Kohathites and of the children of the Korhites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. They praised God, what for? Because of the word that he had delivered to them. Praising God for the word is a good place to start. Now the next morning comes around. It's one thing to get excited in church. It's the next thing to wake up when the alarm goes off the next day. What are they going to do the next day? I doubt very seriously if they woke up the next morning feeling all juicy and ready to go and said, oh boy, this is a great day. This is the day that the Lord had delivered in our enemies into our hands. There's probably a lot of them that have been sleeping with the devil overnight. Thinking on, well, what are we going to do tomorrow? How's this going to work? How do we know that Jehaziel really spoke by the Lord? I mean, even prophets can miss it. How can we be sure? Don't tell me that they didn't have the same thoughts that you and I might have. Or at least be tempted to have. The next day comes around. Jehoshaphat knows he's got to get these people acting on what the, the Lord said. So what does he do? They rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord God, so shall you be established. Believe his prophets, so shall you prosper. In other words, he says, we're going to have to mix faith with, with what we heard in order for it to work. Now here's God saying, stand still, you don't need to fight, the battle is the Lord, it's not yours, and still it's necessary to mix faith with it. That faith thing must be pretty important. Remember what Abraham, the characteristic of his strength of faith, his strong faith, Abraham was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Notice what Jehoshaphat does. 
Jehoshaphat consulted with the people, verse 21, and, went, and then he appointed singers unto the Lord that they should praise the beauty of the holiness. And they went out before the army, that means in front of the army, and they said, here's what he put the singers in front of the army to do. And they said or sang, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. And when, everybody say when. That has to do with time, doesn't it? And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord said ambushments. Now, would somebody explain to me why God waited? Would somebody explain to me why God didn't move until they began to sing and to praise? See, we could look at it and say, oh, well, what if they hadn't sung? Their hearts still could have been right and they still could have loved God just as much. But would God, does that mean God wouldn't have delivered them? Folks, the principle has always been the same, Old Testament and New Testament. And that is, count it all joy when you fall into trouble. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. It still comes down to pray and praise. Because praise is the thing that sets God in motion to work, to bring about into reality the promises that the Word of God makes. And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushments. I won't go through the whole reading, but it says that all the armies started fighting each other. All these five different enemy armies started fighting against each other. By the time Israel came to where they were, the only thing that was left was the stuff to carry off and take home. It took them three days to carry away the spoil, the Bible says. Now, I want you to see another example with me. I want you to look back with me to Joshua chapter 6. This is where the children of Israel took over the, the uh, uh, won their first battle in the promised land. They crossed the Jordan River, and now they're going to take over the, the uh, city of Jericho. Here's God's instruction, verse 2. And the Lord said, uh, the chapter 6, verse 2. I'm sorry, I may not have made that clear. Joshua chapter 6, verse 2. And the Lord has said unto Joshua, See, I have given unto, given unto thine hand Jericho and the king thereof and the mighty men of valor. Now, if you read the context of this, it, the only thing it tells us about Jericho is that the walls are super high, too high for anybody to scale. They found uh, archaeological diggings and stuff like that to show how these things were made, and it was, a, it was an archaeological marvel. It was a military marvel. It was an impregnable fortress because of the way that the, the, the thing was built and part of the, the, uh, the wall was sloped where nobody could get up at the angle that it was on and different things like that. It was too high for him to get to the slope, and then the slope was too steep for him to be able to climb. And so if you look to Jericho, the Bible says in verse 1 of chapter 6 that it was straightly shut up. Nobody was coming in and going out. That means the, the weak points, which uh, the weak points of any fortress are always the gates or the openings. All those have been shut up. They've been fortified. They've been sealed so that nobody can get in or out. It's at its strongest possible position. And in the midst of that, God looks at the city and says, Now look, Joshua, you can see I've given it to you. Seriously? God calls things that be not as though they are. God's already told Joshua, Nobody will be able to stand before you. As I was with Moses, I'll be with you all the days of your life. No man will be able to stand before your face. So he shows him the, the biggest, strongest, most militarily prepared people or city and god says see you i've given it to you shows us how we're supposed to look shows us how we're supposed to see things see i've given you the city and the kings thereof and the mighty men of valor and you shall compass the city all ye men of war and go round about the city once and this shall you do six days and seven priests shall bear up before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns and the seventh day you shall encompass or circle the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets and it shall come to pass that when you make a long blast with the ram's horn and when you hear the sound of the trumpet all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city shall fall down flat one translation says Literally, the, the uh, Hebrew says, fall down in its place. Fall down in its place. And the people shall ascend up every man straight up before him. Now, another archaeological find they've uh, discovered in the diggings around Jericho is that the, the, when the wall fell and the way that it was constructed and the, the way that the wall fell and crumbled down before him, it made a ramp for him to go up into the city. 
Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if that's accurate. I've heard it preached also that the ground opened up and the wall fell, went straight down into the earth. Well, that could be true as well from the, from the wording. There's no way to tell for sure. But one way or another, God is making a promise. He's saying, I'll get you into that city. I'll get you into that city. Now, if the city is your healing and it looks like it's too well fortified for you to be able to take it, these same principles would work for you to receive health. Healing may seem to be shut up from you, but here's how you take the city. Here's how you take hold of the promise. So Joshua starts talking to the priests, and Joshua, verse 10, Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor make any noise with your voice, neither shall any word proceed out of your mouth, until the day I bid you shout, then shall you shout. Notice he's saying, They've already told Joshua, be strong and of good courage. We'll do what you tell us to do, only be strong and get the direction of the Lord so you can lead us effectively. Now Joshua is telling them what to do. And he says, don't shout, don't say a word, don't speak a word for six days until I tell you to shout. Now why does he say do that? Because there are six days of opportunity for people to get into unbelief. If these people were strong people of faith, he wouldn't have to worry about keeping them quiet. If all they're going to say is they're walking around the city and saying, oh, boy, did you see that wall? That thing's coming down. Only six more days. Only five more days. Only four more days. That sucker's ours. If that was the kind of people they were, he wouldn't have had to tell them to, tell them to be quiet. But he knows who they are. He knows who their parents were. He knows their parents' unbelief kept them out of this same promised land 40 years earlier. So what does he say? Don't say a word till I say so. Not a word. Not just while we're walking around the city. For a week, don't talk. And that was a test of their strength, I bet. So they went around the, the city one time the first day, one time the second day, one time the third day, one time the fourth day, one time the fifth day, one time the sixth day. Verse 16, and it came to pass at the seventh time when the priest blew with the trumpets on the seventh day, they went around seven times. And on the seventh time, Joshua said unto the people, shout for the Lord has given you the city. Now notice he said, why shout? It's not just sound waves, folks. It, weren't, it wasn't the sound waves that broke the wall. He said, shout for the Lord has given you the city. Shout for the Lord has given you the city. Now, what would you be thinking if you were walking around this wall for a week? What are you going to be thinking? Just be real. What are you going to be thinking? You're probably going to look at that wall the first day and say, man, I've never seen anything as big in my life. Or think it. Can't say it. But you're probably thinking, I've never seen anything so big. I remember hearing my daddy talk about how big those spies said this thing was. They've been talking about this thing for 40 years. For as long as they were alive, at least. But man, it's it's much bigger than I ever expected it to be. Isn't that the way the devil does? Doesn't the devil want you to see how big the problem is? Well, they have got a real-life big problem right in front of them. And all they've got is the promise of God that they're going to overcome it. Day after day after day. It probably looks bigger the second day than it did the first day. But when the time came, on the seventh time around, on the seventh day, Joshua said, shout for the Lord has given you the city. Okay, this thing's ours, fellas. Give it a good shout. Well, after a week of not being able to talk, they probably let one loose. And when they did, the wall came falling down. See, a lot of people are willing to shout after the wall's down. It's shouting when the wall's up. Can you see the same principle about praying and praising God? Abraham was strong in faith, giving glory to God. That's exactly what they did. They're shouting because the, the city is theirs before the wall ever crumbles, before one pebble ever crumbles off that wall. They're shouting because of the promise of God. Look with me to another example. Wait a minute, I'll get it. Look with me to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 tells us the story of the three Hebrew children. Nebuchadnezzar has set up an image, a golden image to himself, a big tall statue. And he's commanded everybody in the kingdom that at certain times of day when the music plays, 
that everybody's supposed to worship the image? And there were four Hebrew children the Bible tells about, Daniel, and then the other three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they kept the things of God first and foremost in their, in their hearts and in their lives. And so these three Hebrew children, it was reported back to King Nebuchadnezzar that when the music plays, they don't fall down and worship his statue. And he got upset about it. So I'll start in chapter 3. Um, in verse 12, here's when the report comes back about these three guys. Somebody is telling on them to the king and said, There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men, O king, have not regarded thee, nor do they serve their, thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these three men before the king. Now, please notice what's happening. The report of the king makes him mad because the report is... They don't have respect for what you say to do. They're challenging your authority. They don't worship your gods, and so they won't fall down and worship before your statue. So King Nebuchadnezzar gets hot. He gets upset about it. Has them brought in. Then Nebuchadnezzar says to them in verse 14, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do you not serve my gods, nor worship the golden image that I have set up? Is that true? Is that what, I, what I've heard? Is that the truth? He continues to speak and he says, Now if you be ready at what time you hear the music and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, well, in other words, we'll forget that you didn't do it before. But if you worship not, you shall be cast into the same hour into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Now let's take this thing apart to see what's going on. Nebuchadnezzar is mad because he's heard the report that these guys don't respect his authority. In other words, they're challenging his authority as king. I'm not going to worship your image no matter what. Don't care about you. But then the word comes back. So Nebuchadnezzar realizes people standing in the front of the king who has the power to kill them sometimes change their minds and do what he says do. So he says, now here's what I've heard. Is that the truth? Well, we'll find out. If the next time the music plays, the time of day when the music plays, if you fall down and worship the image, we'll count it as nothing ever went wrong. Why? Because the king is interested in one and only one thing, and that is asserting his authority. He's got to make sure that everybody obeys what he says to do, or else he loses his position in the eyes of the people. He loses respect in the eyes of the people. So he says, if you fall down and worship at the next time that the music plays, we'll count everything good. But if you do not, if you do not, fall down and worship when the music plays you're going to be cast into the burning the burning fiery furnace the burning fiery furnace and then he asks the question and what god is it that will deliver you from it see this is all about what god you're going to worship what god are you going to bow down before and then the three hebrew children speak up then nebuchadnezzar puts it on them and they turn around and put it back on the king the king has put it on them, said, if you fall down and worship, we'll count it like nothing ever went wrong. But if you don't worship, you're going to be cast in the burning fiery furnace. And that's really troubling because who can deliver you from that? So the three Hebrew children asked, answer him in his word. Three Hebrew children said, O King Nebuchadnezzar, we're not careful to answer thee in this matter. In other words, we've already made our decision. We don't have to figure out what we're going to do. Now, what is it that they don't have to decide? whether or not they're going to fall down and worship when the music plays. They've already decided that. That's why they haven't been worshiping his statue already. They've already settled that. Folks, it's a good thing to settle what you're going to do before it ever comes up. They're already settled on that. They don't have to huddle up. They said, oh, well, that's what you're talking about. We can answer that for you right up front. If it be so, if what be so, if he casts us into the burning fiery furnace, our God, that, remember that was Nebuchadnezzar's question. If you don't worship, I'm going to cast you in the burning fiery furnace. And who can deliver you from that? What God's able to deliver you from that? Here's the answer. If it be so, if you throw us in, know that our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not, now I grew up in Sunday school hearing that they said, but if God doesn't deliver us, then... Be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Well, folks, that's stupid. That idea is stupid. That's just religious thinking. 
that doesn't make any sense in the world. Because if they're thrown into the burning fiery furnace and God doesn't deliver them, does it really matter if they want to fall down and worship the, the image? They're going to be dead, aren't they? So why are they trying to decide or why would anybody think that this has to do with what they're going to do after they're dead? Do they just ignore the fact that the burning fiery furnace will take their lives if God doesn't deliver them? No, if not means, but if you don't throw us in. It's your choice, in other words, king. The king throws it to them. Your choice, three Hebrew children, is whether or not you fall down and worship my image. They turn it back around and say, well, if you throw us in, God will deliver us. But if you don't throw us in, we're still not worshiping your image. Now, if this was a matter of whether or not God delivers them out of the burning fire, the burning furnace, fiery furnace, if that's what it was about, then King Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't get upset about anything. He'd laugh and he'd say, well, okay, let's see. Let's see if God will deliver you from the burning fiery furnace. He wouldn't have anything to get mad about. He could laugh about it and say, well, okay, I guess we'll test out who you're worshiping, who you're trusting in. But if this is a challenge to his authority, if this is a challenge to his authority as the king, we're not worshiping your image whether you throw us in or not. Throw us in and God will deliver us. Don't throw us in. We're still not worshiping your image. Then that would make him mad, wouldn't it? Because that's what got him mad to start with. Well, let's see what happened. Then, verse 19, after they said, if you don't throw us in, we're not worshiping your image. Then was King Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spoke and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. One translation said seven times hotter than it had ever been heated. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats. And their. Wait a minute. Let me get something out of the way so I can read this. And their hosen and their hats and their other garments. And they were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore because the king's commandment was urgent. And the furnace exceeding hot. The flame of the fire slew those men. That took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Now the men that threw them in were the, the most mighty men. The most mighty men in verse 30. Most mighty men of his army or his guard were slain by the heat of the fire at the, at the mouth where they threw them in. Now, I'm going to start reading in verse 23. Really, it's only two verses that I want to, uh, uh, or three verses that I want to, uh, to, to read in this story that are important to the story. But there's a lot of stuff here uh, that I'm going to read from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. There's a lot of things in the Septuagint that the English Bible leaves out. I, I, as a matter of fact, there's so much, there's a whole section in here, it would take too long for me to read it, so I'm going to just pick parts of it out for you to see or, or hear. Verse uh, 23, Then these three men, this is from the Septuagint, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the midst of the burning furnace and walked in the midst of the flame, singing praises to God and blessing the Lord. See, the King James leaves that out, doesn't it? But the original Hebrew text indicates the singing praise to God. Let me read it again. These three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound in the midst of the burning furnace and walked in the midst of the flame, singing praise to God and blessing the Lord. Then Shadrach stood up and prayed on this manner and opening his mouth in the midst of the fire, said, Blessed art thou, O Lord God of our fathers. Thy name is worthy to be praised and glorified forevermore. For thou art righteous in all the things that thou hast done to us. Yea, true are all thy works. Thy ways are right and thy judgments truth. And all things that thou hast brought upon us and upon the city of our forefathers, even Jerusalem, thou hast executed true judgment. For according to truth and judgment did thou bring all these things upon us because of our sins. He's talking about Israel being taken into captivity by the Babylonians. For we have sinned and committed iniquity, departing from thee in all things. We have trespassed and have not obeyed thy commandments, nor kept them. Neither done as thou hast commanded us, that it might go well with us. Wherefore, all that thou hast brought upon us and everything that thou hast done to us, thou hast done in true judgment. And then he goes on. I won't read the whole thing. But... Um, Uh, I'll skip down to part of this section. It says, But the angel of the Lord came down into the oven together with, that, uh, with uh, Shadrach and his fellows and smote the flame of the fire out of the oven. Well, wait a minute. I, I missed part of it. 
Let me back up. And the king's servants that put them in ceased not to make the oven hot with rosin pitch and tow and small wood. In other words, they kept making it hotter and hotter than it was when they first threw them in. So that the flame steamed forth above the furnace forty and nine cubits, and it passed through and burned those Chaldeans it found about the furnace. So it's killing the Chaldeans, killing the Babylonians that are close by in close proximity, but it's not hurting Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the angel of the Lord came down into the oven together with Shadrach and his fellows and smote the flame of the fire out of the oven and made the midst of the furnace as it had been a moist, whistling wind so that the fire touched them not at all, neither hurt nor troubled them. Then three, as of one mouth, praised, glorified, and blessed God in the furnace, saying, Blessed art thou, O Lord God of our fathers, and to be praised and exalted above all forever. And blessed is thy glorious and holy name, and to be praised and exalted above all forever. And it goes down for paragraph after paragraph after paragraph, praising God and talking about how they praise God. It ends with, O all ye that worship the Lord, bless the God of gods, praise him and give him thanks for his mercy endures forever. Now verse 24. And Nebuchadnezzar heard them singing praises, and he wondered and rose up in haste and said to his nobles, Did not we cast three men into the fire, into the, bound into the midst of the fire? And they said unto the king, Yes, O king. And the king said, But I see four men loose and walking in the midst of the fire, and there has no harm happened to them, and the appearance of the fourth is like the Son of God. I have no idea why the King James translation and, and every other English translation that I know of, for, for that matter, omits the singing and praises to God in the, the, the section of their prayers. But they do. But Nebuchadnezzar heard them singing and praising, to God, praising God in the midst of the furnace. That would be disconcerting to, hit, to the king, wouldn't, don't you think? Because the king just had this contest with these three guys, and these three guys say, well, if you throw us in, God will del- deliver us. But if you don't throw us in, we're still not worshiping your image. And that makes him mad because it's a challenge to his authority. So he commands the fire to be burned seven times hotter than it's ever burned. Kills the guys that throw him in, the most mighty men of his army. He's losing good men. Then in the middle of the fiery furnace, they start singing praises to God and praying, talking about how God has done righteously with his people. And the Chaldeans keep making it hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter. And all it winds up doing is killing more of the Babylonians that are around the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar hears them singing praises and saying, what is going on here? I see four people in there. It was set up in such a way that it heated the palace, maybe even more than that. And so he could look down in it from above. He sees four guys in there walking around. They're loose. Nobody's bound anymore. The rope's burned off, but it doesn't, the fire doesn't hurt them. And this section says that the angel of the Lord was down there with him. That's probably a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. He looked like the son of God at least. And he made the middle of the fire, the hottest part of the fire, like a moist whistling wind. Folks, this praying and praising stuff works. And it has from the beginning. So Nebuchadnezzar goes to the, draws near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God. <laughs> He's changing his tune now, isn't he? That sounds exactly like Paul and Silas in praying unto God and singing praises at midnight, and the prisoners heard them. Suddenly there was an earthquake. These three Hebrew children are praying and praising God, loose in the fire, comforted with a moist, whistling wind. And Nebuchadnezzar changes his tune. He says, hey, you guys are serving the right God after all. Would y'all come out? So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth out of the midst of the fire. What did they do? Same thing Paul and Silas did. At midnight, they prayed and sang praises. Midnight, they sang and prayed and sang praises. Same principle as, as uh, Abraham, who was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Folks, there's something about praising God that puts him in motion. It's not just praying. It's not just standing on the word in faith. Thank God those things are necessary. But add to your faith, add to your praise, or add to your prayer, praise, and thanksgiving unto God. The Bible's full of stories like this. We're out of time, but we could tell you at least five or six more stories. Take just as long as we already have and relate more stories of the same results, the same victory. 
praying and praising God together is a dynamic force. It's the praise cure. I'll close with this, one last story. And that is Dr. Lillian B. Yeomans was a medical doctor who, because of the stress she was under and the, the long hours and everything that she was working, she wound up getting hooked on morphine. She started taking it as a sedative, and then she started taking too much, and she got addicted. And in those days, I, I don't know too much about the drug myself. I know people can still get addicted to it, but it was a, uh, something that robbed her of everything. It, she, um, she gave her life over to it. It cost her a medical practice. It cost her uh, the wealth that she had gained. Her family was wealthy along with the money that she made as a physician. It just it took everything from her. And she got in such a destitute condition that she knew that there was no help for her but God. Medical science had no offering, no uh, offer of help for her whatsoever. And so she just cried out unto the Lord. And through a series of learning the word and standing on the word in faith, she was delivered. Completely delivered. Well, she went back into to practicing medicine, so to speak, but doing it from a spiritual angle. She didn't want to go back into the medical profession, so she developed, along with her sister, she developed, neither one of them had married. They'd both uh, given themselves to careers. And she and her sister put together what uh, we might call healing rooms. They had a home that they had inherited from their father. Big, big home, had, you know, 10 or 12, 14 bedrooms, whatever it was. And they turned it into a, a, a sick room or a hospice, what we might call a hospice today. They would only take people that medical science had given up on. And there was a waiting list, just more people than they could attend to and get in there, of people that were trying to, to come to where they were to get help because of the results that they got. Well, there was one lady in their, in their, uh, uh, in their home, and their, their practice was they would feed them two meals a day. You know, sick people don't usually eat a whole lot anyway especially critically ill and um, near-death conditions. And so they'd feed them twice a day, once in the morning, once in the afternoon, late afternoon. And when they would feed them, they'd have them on a rotating schedule, and as they would feed them, they would read to them Galatians chapter 3 and Deuteronomy chapter 28. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, and Deuteronomy 28 tells what the law is, including every sickness and every disease written and everything not written in the, that chapter. So they would do that twice a day, and they'd minister to people according to the word. And there was one lady, one Christian lady, she was praying just in the middle of the day, you know, laying on her sick bed, couldn't get up. She was, I don't know what her condition was, but she was too weak and too sick to be able to get up. She was bedridden. So she's laying in, the, in her bed in the middle of the day, and she just cried out to the Lord, Oh, Lord, I hate this. I know this is not of you. I'm seeing in your word that Jesus paid the price. Help me. Help me. And all of a sudden, she had a vision. And in this vision, she saw what, uh, you ever seen the scales of justice, you know, the blindfolded lady in the scales of justice type thing? Well, it was one of the great big old scales. And on one side, there was a giant basket over there. Uh, on both sides, there was a giant basket, but one was full and one was empty. And the one that was full was all the way weighted down, and the other one was way up on top, you know, no, uh, there's no balance to it whatsoever. And she saw in the basket that the one that was weighted down was labeled prayer. And the one that was on top and didn't, didn't, have any balance, didn't give any balance to the scale was praise. And the Lord spoke to her and said, when the praise balances out the prayer, that's where you'll find your healing. So she took into it, boy. I mean, she started praising God every moment of the day that she was awake. She started singing little songs and started getting throughout the, throughout the house. People would catch her and, you know, pick up on that. And, you know, some songs she sang, made up herself. Other songs she, she would sing from, uh, you know, the church songs and that kind of stuff, hymnals that people would know and so forth. And so just the whole house, over a period of a couple of weeks, the whole house started just being filled with praise. All of a sudden, one day she had taken, gotten so taken up with it, she didn't really think about how long it was or what she was doing. One day she had another vision, and instantly in that vision she saw that the scales were balanced out, the praise had balanced out the prayer. And she was instantly healed, jumped up out of bed, and went running down the steps. Well, that got started going through the whole house. Everybody started hearing the screaming and the commotion of what was going on, and they started praising God. Dr. Yeoman said that they had one of the greatest periods of healing in, their, in the, the history of their, um, their healing rooms or whatever they call them. Why? Because people started adding praise to their prayers. Dr. Yeoman said it changed their ministry because before that time... Praying and praising God, the, the pray, praising God part was not such an emphasis. 
But after that, man, it became one of the major points. Are you out there? And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God. Hallelujah. 